The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning to you all. Well done for being back here this morning. It's not the best time to get young adults, young adults out on a, early on a Saturday morning, but you're here, so well done. Uh, this conference, Quest for Life, in the world but not of it, uh, is about understanding that there are really two ultimate ways of looking at the world, and those boil down to, amidst all the complexity of the way people see the world, all the religious ideologies and ideas that are out there, boils down to really either man's idea or the way of God's Word. And we saw last night when we considered the kingdoms of our culture, understanding the fight for the Christian faith, that these, uh, this, this story began early right there in the book of Genesis. Uh, we looked at, considered that character Nimrod. It's the foundation, uh, the foundational character, the archetype, if you will, of rebellion, and how it was a choice really between the ideas of man, his remaking of himself and his own ideas, through his own ideas into the, his ideal society, or those who followed God's way, God's word, and God's covenant. Now today, we're going to look first thing at the, now the propaganda of those kingdoms, in particular the role of media in the culture. By propaganda, we simply mean the messaging, the modes, the, uh, the, the, the modes of communication, the manner of communication, the content of communication of these uh, kingdom perspectives. No one would deny, I think, that uh, we live today in a media age. And this means that uh, television and various other uh, visual media take up the greater part of our media time. So it might be your television at home, sure, but it might also now be in your roving devices, phones, laptops, and so forth. So our interaction with the world is increasingly... Uh, being shaped, is happening through, if you will, these devices. It's not uncommon to see young people sitting there texting each other while they sit in the same room. Instead of uh, speaking to each other then and writing letters in the way that we used to, now, actually, some of you here probably young enough, letter writing, what's that? Um, but there was a time when people actually used to sit down with a pen, write a letter, and then post it, stick it in the mail, and it would be carried by a delivery service, and somebody would then open it and read it. And uh, what, it, what this communication today uh, means through these devices is that we communicate through fragments of messages. So text messages are message fragments. And so often you look around, you see people with their headphones on and staring at images and message fragments. We've actually uh, reached a point where it's certainly true that social interaction is deteriorating. You, you, if you travel on public transport, you see this. People don't really talk to each other, or there's very little interaction. They're so engaged in their own multimedia world. Rich language is being lost because as message fragments are being used rather than full uh, developed sentences, we're losing language, and critical thought is suffering, and as a result, the culture is being, is being altered. Now, some of you might think, well, that's surely preposterous. I mean, we're more in touch with the world now than ever before through these devices. 
Yet most of that uh, constant uh, news, instant news so-called, that we receive through these devices are actually carefully orchestrated media events. These are a stream of dislocated pieces of global events that come to us without a context through a variety of media. And those media are suitable only for fragments of conversation. So we feel like we're in touch with the world, but what we're getting is tiny little bits and pieces, fragments from here and there, which we are constantly uh, fed. And as such, it is not only the message conveyed uh, by these media, but the media itself, which impacts content and shapes culture. By that, it's not just what we see on the television or what we see on our handheld devices. It's not, just the, it's not just the message. It's the fact that we receive the message through a visual media that affects its content. The influence of print, for example. How many of you actually brought a Bible today or how many of you got it on your phone? Put your hand up if you brought a Bible like this. There's a few of you, that's good. So there's, there's, a, there's a residual epistemology of the print, word, printed word there. But print and reading itself are waning so that there are critical areas of life, from the content of education to politics to, biz, to business, which is recast in a manner suitable for television consumption and the handheld, visually attractive, seductive, smart device. So the way in which the content that used to be delivered in print format, because it's now being delivered through visual media format, the manner uh, of how we communicate complex information is being changed via the media it's communicated through of necessity. Let me give you a few examples of this so you know what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is, is examining the tools of communication uh, and when we examine the tools of communication, we actually learn a great deal about culture. What I'm saying today is that modern media makes the word subservient to the image. Modern visual media makes the word subservient to the image. And this is problematic for the Christian because it's a departure from the Christian worldview. The God of Scripture is manifest in and through His Word which was unprecedented, actually, outside of biblical faith. And what word, print, text requires of you is abstract reasoning, abstract thinking, a focus on reading, writing, or literacy, and eventually printing. That's what happened with uh, the rise of the Christian worldview. And those things actually gave us what we call Christendom, or Western culture. Reading, writing, printing the necessity of if revelation has come through the written word, then it's not sufficient to see pictures. One has to read and understand. That becomes the priority. Paganism, however, was focused on the image, on idols, on iconography, and that meant a different understanding of the divine shaped pagan culture. So I touched on this last night briefly, but magical arts arts with ritualistic reenactment in things like fertility cults and so forth, was central. It, paganism wasn't interested in an inscripturated word from God. That wasn't relevant. 
For paganism, the divine was unknowable essence of which man and creation was an emanation. Remember, we talked last night about uh, Plotinus's one, oneism and twoism. And in that worldview, uh, everything that is in what we would call creation is an aspect of an unknowable essence. It's just an emanation from that essence. And as such, the divine was merely a, reflect, a reflection of man's idea, man's ideas even of himself. And that meant that when you look at the thinking of the pagan world, it nurtured a view of reality, and by reality there I mean appearance, what appears to us. They thought of it as a shadow. They thought of the world as a kind of a shadow, an echo, a passing image. It was less than fully real. That world was to be escaped from like a prison. And the human person was thought of as an impermanent mask a persona that could be discarded and changed at will. There was nothing really permanent about human nature, per se. Now, the Christian, on the other hand, has a world that is created by God, that's defined by God, and that is fully real. In other words, for the Christian, creation is not a shadow, it's not an image, it's not a deception, it's not an echo merely of eternal ideas, It's fully known, fully interpreted, and fully governed by God. So you you, you see there, based on what we said last night, two ideas actually of what the world is emerge. One is that creation is somehow some kind of illusory um, echo, uh, temporary expression, emanation from the one. On the other, creation is in fact a real, temporal, historical order that's governed by God. Now, when you think about something like that, you take a little step backwards and you ask, what, uh, what are the things that form and shape our thinking today with respect to life and truth? Is it the word or is it the image? The visual media clearly is the top priority. It's a major factor today. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to leave this for um, uh, more critical Uh, uh, expositors of culture like uh, Dr. Ted Fenske, who's going to talk about this later on today. But the temptation would be, if we're talking about media, to immediately jump in and say, well, let's analyze some movies and some TV programs and discuss their message, which is very important. But before we do that, we have to discuss the medium itself and the impact that the medium itself has in shaping our thinking and therefore shaping our culture. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, a few years old now, pointed out that culture consists of human conversations that go on in a variety of symbolic modes. So that might be artistic modes, literary, mathematical, musical, architectural. All of those modes of conversation, of communication, form culture. The forms of these conversations regulate the kind of content that can come from these forms. So let me give you an illustration. An ancient mode of conversation or communication was the smoke signal. That was a form of communication. Now, the smoke signal can communicate some very, very limited information if you have the code. And if you know what the different puffs of smoke are meant to indicate to you, They can give you some very limited information. But you can't write poetry or do philosophy with a smoke signal, can you? And the reason being is that the form of communication excludes that sophisticated kind of content. 
To offer a more contemporary illustration of how form of communication governs the content, think about television today. On television, image is most important because the visual is the primary medium. Otherwise, you'd listen to the radio. The visual is the primary medium. And the goal is to appeal to the eyes so that what is seen is attractive and is entertaining. As a result, how many female movie stars today are unattractive 250-pound women? I haven't seen many. As a result, you see, the, the, the visual media in movies and television is governed by what people think is attractive. People don't want to watch what isn't attractive. So that governs the content that's going to be provided. Let me put it to you another way, and I'm just using the one illustration of weight here, but in Canada, had Justin Trudeau been an ugly 350-pound man, not a drama teacher, but a guy who worked in a burger bar, could he have been elected prime minister? I suggest to you, no, he couldn't. The grossness of a 320-pound image on TV, even if the man were very intelligent with very, very sophisticated political discourse, the image would overwhelm in the majority of people's minds the content of his worthy discourse on politics. And don't pretend to yourself that you would actually think any differently. The image on television overcomes the content That's the nature of the medium. Now, the power of these images can't be overstated. They have the power to shape public life and public policy. Let me give you an illustration. In Britain recently, the image on television of a dead infant floating near the shore of a Greek island, by his own admission, determined the policy of the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, regarding letting more Syrian refugees into Britain. He saw this image of this child floating in the water, and he said that struck him so powerfully that he addressed public policy accordingly. Now, the fact that people don't know who the child was, who their family were, how the child actually died, and whether this was actually the child of a Christian family who'd been thrown overboard by Muslims, which has happened repeatedly in this migration out of the Middle East is irrelevant. The image alone, without a context, changes public policy. That's the power of an image. On television, and in its related internet media, discourse is conducted primarily through visual imagery, so that the conversation becomes more about image than words, hence the need for image managers for politicians. This means that in the same way that you can't do poetry and sm- uh, do poetry and philosophy through smoke signals, can you really do meaningful political, religious, and cultural discourse on television? I've tried. At best, it's extremely difficult. In this world, the speechwriter declines, and the image manager with the one-liners becomes central, because it's a visual medium. Consider the U.S. elections for a moment. How many more times can we bear to listen to discussions about Donald Trump's hair over against Ted Cruz's hairstyle? As though that bears any relationship to the value of what the politicians are saying. 
the primary debates that you may have been tracking with are not debates. They are structured media events for advertising and entertaining sloganeering. In short, the medium of TV works against the content of serious political and religious debate. Because people want to watch something that's entertaining, that's changing, that's moving, because the visual is the primary medium. This shows the medium of communication has an effect on the message because the medium limits the type of message that can be effectively communicated. Messages are specific, concrete statements about the world, aren't they? The forms of our media and the symbols they use don't make statements about the world. Your, your television doesn't make a statement about the world in itself. Your phone doesn't make a statement about the world. But they are like metaphors. They're media metaphors which almost unobtrusively color, classify, shape, and define what the world is like. In other words, the medium of communication tells us something about the world as it communicates the message. For example, with television, beautiful is good, truth is brief and sincere. The more sincere you can come across. Wit is wisdom. And the entertaining is right, is the right. If it's entertaining, it's right. Now, that's the unobtrusive message that you receive from visual media all the time. The medium is not the technology. The technology is the tool. It's the machine. I could use my cell phone as a torch, for example, or I could use it to put hot drinks on. But the medium is the use to which we put the technology. Now, of course, technologies suggest to us a primary use, don't they? They, they create social and intellectual environments for us. So that the phone, if you have the smartphone, has created a social and intellectual environment for communication. Not a letter anymore. It's a quick text where words aren't even spelt properly. Now, I'm not commenting on the right or wrongs of that at the moment. I'm just talking about the effect that it has on how we communicate. Our metaphors, how we communicate, our language, that is our mediums. The phone becomes a form of language. It's a medium. Our metaphors about what reality is like, which tells us now, today, the visual that the instant, entertaining, fragmented, it's trivial. It says reality is instant, it's entertaining, it's fragmented, it's trivial. This helps create the content of culture, which is increasingly instant, entertaining, fragmented, and trivial. Okay, so let's talk about how the medium can trivialize reality. Years ago, a, a media mogul in the USA, Ted Turner, expressed how visual media works and the power it has to shape thinking. And this is what he said to a group of broadcasters in the United States. He says, your delegates to the United Nations are not as important as the people in this room. That is the broadcasters he was talking to. We are the ones that determine what the people's attitudes are. It's in our hands, end quote. The worldview of those who capture the media is obviously going to dramatically shape its messaging, their, their beliefs, their ideas. But we have seen that it's equally important issue to consider is the medium itself, not just the message that they're communicating. The message is shaped by the medium, and the product 
that comes to us then reshapes the culture. So what's the bias of visual media in terms of shaping content? How does this shift from the written print material delivered initially by hand, the mail, the letter, or the book? Of course, the story is that we got um, printing, and then the telegraph was invented. So you could send a telegram. That sped things up quite a bit. And that started to change the nature of messaging. And then, of course, photography was invented. That started to change people's perception on the world. And then you have light speed, TV, and internet. How how does that, that massive transformation in communication affects how people see the world? Visual media lends itself then to a particular type of content. Now, it's not that visual media is wrong or evil in itself. Don't get the impression, oh, we've got some old geezer up there who thinks, you know, the visual stuff is bad. That's not what I'm saying. It's not wrong in itself. TV is a perfectly good medium for trivial entertainment. And that's the best thing about TV. Trivial entertainment. In the sophisticated form of film, visual media is wonderful for storytelling It brings various settings to life. It relaxes us often. It entertains us. It's fun. And because it is by nature a world of fiction, in science fiction or fantasy, films are able to at least raise important questions that are culturally sensitive in a manner that's non-offensive to people. If it's in a film, if, you're, if, it's, if, if the fantasy, the fictional world is raising a controversial question in a film, people don't get so offended. However, even the goal of serious film, what's the, what's the first primary goal of every filmmaker? Somebody said make money, which is very good. Yes, because their goal is en- to entertain you because entertainment makes money. Okay? Their goal primarily is not to enrich your thinking. Right? They want to make a successful film. That's why it's called the entertainment industry. Film is never actually able to rise to the level of print material in depth, descriptive power, analysis of an issue, or the seriousness of content because the medium is visual and its orientation is entertainment. The film can raise the big questions, but it is hopelessly inadequate for discussing and addressing serious issues sufficiently, adequately. And there are several reasons for this. The first is that it is a visual world. These, some, some of this might sound obvious, but the, the, first, the first reason that it can't deal with it adequately is it's a visual world. Television and other visual forms describe the world through the visual medium. And this leads to, in the entertainment industry, to the priority of advertising. If you're watching television or watching the Super Bowl, whatever you're watching, you see the priority of advertising. Because what we see sells. And that means in the movies you're watching as well, there is product placement. So if you're watching James Bond, which is superb stuff, it's trivial entertainment, there's product placement. BMW wants its cars in there. Aston Martin wants its cars in there. Because what we see sells. And that means we're not persuaded so much by conscious reasoning in the visual media as we are through the attractiveness of the image that we see. 
That's what sells the product to us. TV or film need ratings, and ratings require money, advertising, and entertainment. So attractiveness is absolutely critical. This also means that our attitudes and values can be steadily altered by the clever images portrayed rather than the facts or the force of rational argument. And this makes the visual medium the ideal tool for the manipulation and idiotization, the idiotizing of a population. For example, in terms of human sexuality, the happy, funny, entertaining, lovable homosexual characters in modern family-type shows, and also in films, creates an attractive and fictional image, a mythical image, of what homosexuality is, and it radically distorts its social, personal consequences and implications, including its medical implications. So the image of human sexuality, of promiscuity, sleeping around and everything else, is what we soak in in watching the television. People are not rationally thinking, oh, what are the consequences of this uh, guy or this girl jumping into bed with five people in this film or in this TV show? They see the image and they think the image of it is attractive. And when it comes to reporting news, for example, the visual medium also means that what is thought newsworthy is what we currently have pictures of. In other words, what's newsworthy is where the camera person is. Not necessarily what is significant. Therefore, broadcasters don't so much report the news as they do construct it from images to entertain us. And images just give us a small fragment of the whole. And what you do with an image is you quickly grasp the image, you see it immediately, and that image forms an impression. But that impression you have may be different from what's true. (laughs) Reading, hearing, processing via older mediums take much longer, and it gives you a distance from the statements being made about reality, and therefore it gives you that critical sense of perspective, which you don't have with the immediate communication of the visual. But the image offers simply immediate satisfaction and immediate sense of titillation. Even shocking images that we see are compelling. They sort of command our attention. Moreover, the visual media is essentially misleading since at times images can portray one thing while something very different is said. And people overlook the discrepancies between the two. So, for example, the advert might be for a specific car that you're seeing between your favorite show in the break. And, of course, the fact of a car has to do with engineering and utility. I mean, that's what a car is. You would think you'd be learning something about that. But instead, what is said to you is that owning this car will surround you with beautiful women enable you to move unhindered through the traffic in downtown New York in rush hour, make you the envy of your colleagues and transform your life. All of which is complete nonsense, but the image assures you otherwise. Now, why do advertisers spend a fortune constructing adverts like that? Because it sells. The research has all been done. They spend millions on it because it works. That's why they do it. 
The image thus has power to seduce and essentially get the viewer addicted to consumption to somehow realize for themselves this fictional image. I want to be like that fictional image, and if this, this product, this image will help me get there, help me do this. The result, however, is only living in a world of fantasy and unreality, which makes one increasingly incompetent in the real world. You know less about cars than before the advert. Pornography is actually the best example of contrived visual fantasy portrayed to you as reality that can so bypass reasoning that it addicts the viewer, but actually makes you sexually impotent in the real world. So young men who get addicted to pornography in their mid-early teens can be sexually impotent by their early 20s. Because they're addicted to an image-based world of fantasy that is totally unreal. So they actually cannot function with a real person. So it's a visual world. That's the first reason it doesn't have the ability to communicate a certain degree of complexity. Secondly, it's an instant world. So this world of visual media, it divorces us from the past. What we are given in a visual culture is what we see only. And what you see is instant, it's immediate, it's the present only. The highlights or sound bites for which television has time and use are selected by someone else and they come to you without context of what is before or after, which means they can't be properly interpreted. So you get that tiny snippet of Ted Cruz's speech to make him look like a bigot. Or you get that one minute of Prime Minister's question time, which has no context, so you don't know what went before or afterwards, so you can't properly interpret it. Visual media, when reporting on the world, shows us that select portion of the present. Serious discussion is forced to provide a two-minute worth of TV fragmentary moment. It's a series of uh, broken instants, if you will, that then get spliced together for you. That try to tell you this is what really happened. This is the substance of the conversation. Without time to formulate and structure ideas and without context, what we see and hear, we are simply being fed an idea by the image and the related slogans. In other words, the context of no context is an incomplete observation, which means content is just these bite-sized chunks. I've done a fair bit of television in my, uh, the last 15 years or so, uh, and it is extremely difficult when you're asked to go and discuss anything of significance or substance on the television. Because you have to reduce what you're going to say on a complex issue that requires context into a small bite-sized chunk which the media spins to make you look like an idiot or a bigot because you're a Christian. It takes no time to see, but it takes time to read. It takes time to hear and then longer to understand. News today is not reporting historical facts but observing things as they are happening because reporting facts actually requires time and context. This is why most modern Westerners cannot understand, for example, the other thing that's been in the news so much recently, ISIS. They can't understand ISIS. What they see are live fragments on the news of terrorism, which they are told has nothing to do with Islam. 
But they know nothing about the divisions within Islam. They know nothing about Sharia law. They know very little or nothing about the history of Islam in the Middle East. They have a fragment without a context. So they swallow this media pablum that terrorism and ISIS have nothing to do with Islam. Therefore, they see an image of a suffering Syrian and think that Europe should open its doors wide to let them in. But they do not see at the same time Muslims engaged in al-Hijra, which is mass migration, a doctrine of Islam for the spread of Islam. It's a religious duty in Islam to migrate en masse into the house of war from the house of Islam where you will control the culture eventually. The focus then in visual media is the instant without context which renders accurate interpretation for people impossible or nearly impossible. And then thirdly, it gives us a imminent mundane world. That is the idea of a secular world, a here and now world only is enhanced by the visual media culture. TV culture must focus on the imminent rather than the transcendent world and so tends to unhook us from transcendent matters. And by transcendent, I mean issues to do with God, with faith, with things that you can't immediately see, which includes truth, of course. You're taken up with the immediacy of the moment, of the visual. A book, a poem, a symphony can transport a person into realms of transcendence, but the visual... The visual's attention is always within the confines of time, not beyond it. You're right there in the moment. You're watching it. The visual instant elements combine to restrict the value of TV in particular to essentially trivial matters. This accounts for the popularity of mundane soap operas, which people are addicted to, and reality television. (laughs) I mean, have you ever thought of a greater oxymoron than reality TV? which is totally contrived unreality, but it's called reality TV. TV is a poor medium for communicating the gravity, for example, of transcendent biblical truth. As such, Christian TV tends to be very bad indeed at communicating the transcendent matters of the faith because of the medium's inability, that's the visual medium's inability, to make serious content, ritual, sacred space, contemplation, etc., meaningful from a TV or an iPhone, which is very much an imminent, immediate experience in every other respect. By that, I don't mean that Christians can't make good films. No, absolutely they can and should. What I'm talking about is the fact that um, when you try and transfer... uh, meaningful theological religious content into the visual medium through uh, religious entertainment, Sunday programs and so forth, they tend to be awful. The lack of coherence in the fragmentary world of television and the mixture of advertising aimed at entertainment means that religious programming, including preaching, must also be made entertaining for people to watch it. And as you make it entertaining, you make it banal. It has to be short, punchy, trivialized in order to gain viewers because it's visual. 
So what are the dangers of this? Now, so what I've done is describe, the, all I've done there is describe the limitations of a visual medium. But if the culture is utterly dominated by that visual medium as its epistemology, that's its way of understanding the world, there are certain dangers that flow from that. They become obvious. On the one hand, the visual medium through the power of images and deceptive messaging can desensitize people to truth and moral reality when a fictitious world is portrayed as real. Reality TV, for example. By, con- by constant and uncritical exposure, the relativism of the cultural elite seeks to shape people's ideas, and what it shows them is don't judge anything. It's all instant, it's all immediate. And what it unobtrusively tells you is don't judge anything. And by controlling the instant images, and thus creating impressions of the present, the culture of the future is actually being shaped. Because the messaging that you receive is shaping tomorrow. Control the past, control the future. On the other hand, because the visual is strongly oriented towards entertainment, so on the one hand, you've got this possibility of people being desensitized to truth and moral reality. On the other, because the visual is oriented towards entertainment, people are conditioned to think that whatever is communicated by TV media is essentially trivial. And that means when you try and use um, a visual medium, moving visual medium to communicate key truth about God, that the value of that is undercut because of its association with triviality and fiction. If the medium is primarily associated with, with the fictitious and triviality, when you try and talk about God effectively through that medium, people think, well, it's trivial. It's probably fictitious. So you have these twin problems. Neil Postman has observed, and I quote, the best things on television are its junk. And no one and nothing is seriously threatened by it. Besides, we do not measure a culture by its output of undisguised trivialities, but what it claims as significant. Therein lies our problem, for television is at its most trivial and therefore most dangerous when its aspirations are high, when it presents itself as a carrier of important cultural conversations. So what he's saying is, in one sense, when we recognize and understand and see visual media, television, for example, as at its most useful and effective when it's just junk, when we know it's junk, you know, you're watching The Musketeers or whatever, it's not dangerous. When it's most dangerous is when it's, when it's posing as a carrier of significant and important cultural messages, trying to make television more serious then, and a carrier of significant content is futile because as a medium, we ask of it what it can't do. In other words, I'm not suggesting the answer is, let's clean up television and have some really boring Christian debate shows that last three hours. Who's going to (laughs) watch? I probably won't watch, right? Because I would much rather read something like that. Perhaps worse still, when TV is thought of as a carrier of important cultural discourse, our instant visual culture is gradually conditioned to see reality in life as ultimately about entertainment. And so what is entertaining is true. 
The person who can entertain me the most, most attractive, well, what they're saying must be right. I put it to you that that's how Justin Trudeau was elected. He's a pretty boy. He's got good spin doctors. It's not the content of his policy that makes any sense. There's an attractiveness of the image of the Trudeau dynasty that's sold to the Canadian public very effectively through the media. When, um, when we get to this point where what is entertaining is true, listen to what Neil Postman says again. He says, when a population becomes distracted, though, by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, people become an audience then then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture, death is a clear possibility. If the nation is simply an audience, if our lives are this perpetual round of entertainments and serious conversation is dumbed down for the visual, visual media so that it's like baby talk, cultural death, he says, is imminent. When a nation is just an audience, then the visual medium can be easily manipulated and used to exercise thought control through the smiling face of entertainment. These are the dangers. Entertainment has a smiling face. This generation has been taught to think, for example, of the normativity of socially constructed LGBTQ, etc., etc., identity largely through the entertaining world of visual media posing as serious cultural discourse. It's not serious cultural discourse, but it's presented as such. From the Christian standpoint, real news, serious politics, science, education, economics, commerce, God, faith, are not diversions for entertainment, but they concern man's calling as God's creature. So, we've identified the visual focus of our culture. This is why some of you find it difficult to listen to a lecture of this length, by the way. Not because there's anything wrong with you. You're not used to it. You're not accustomed to it. I, you know, I preach to my con- congregation in Toronto for an hour every Sunday. It's a young congregation. Interestingly enough, statistically at the moment, we're seeing that the longer a pastor preaches for, the younger his congregation, because they're hungry for content. Because the visual is content, essentially content-free. But we find it hard to concentrate. You know, when I was a boy in school, nobody had ADHD. Nobody knew what that was. Those things develop as people's inability to focus and concentrate is removed by visual media. So we've talked about what the visual media as a medium, what, it's, what it does, what it's good for, what it's not good for. And uh, we talked about some of the dangers. Well, what's the Christian focus in all of this? How do we respond? Well, think about this for a minute. I've suggested we now live in a time when image has overcome substance to the point that we are deceived by the image a manufactured image to create an impression that does not truly reflect reality. Have you noticed how even the newsreaders are all really beautiful? News has to be entertaining. But this was not the way it was at the beginning of creation. This idea that there was a a dichotomy 
where image overcomes substance. Think about the beginning for a moment. At the foundations of creation, we are told that God made human beings in his own image. In the image of God. Man is God's image bearer. Before sin entered the world and our first parents were in their innocence in the garden of God, which is real history, truth, that is reality, and the image coincided completely. In other words, the image didn't distort or lie. Adam and Eve were a true reflection of the image of God in righteousness, holiness, and dominion, and represented God truly to creation. Made in God's image with everything defined and interpreted by his word, what was seen was to be believed in a world without sin. What God said about created reality was true. And so the word he spoke did not expose what appeared, the image, as false. The truth didn't expose an image as false, but it completely coincided with the reality of what he had made. In other words, there was no dichotomy of truth and appearance. What appeared to be the case was the case. God's created reality, in other words, was not virtual and therefore exposed as mere appearance by the truth. Instead, it was see, what was seen and heard coincided together as complete truth. But due to sin and rebellion and believing the lie, which we talked about yesterday, that man could create and make, and here's a way to think about it, a virtual reality for himself. By denying God's created reality and redefining the world of truth for himself, truth and appearance no longer coincided perfectly together. Man said, I'm not going to accept God's interpretation. I'm going to create a virtual reality. It has to be virtual because if it's not what God's created, it's not real. It's an appearance, but it's different from the truth. What was seen in man's virtual world could no longer be trusted. Appearances could be deceiving. Think about this. After the fall, the bear could no longer be safely cuddled contrary to appearance. I have two little girls. Well, they're not so little anymore, but they always thought bears looked so incredibly cuddly. That's why we have teddy bears. I wouldn't cuddle a grizzly if I were you. Nakedness no longer meant innocence and purity. A smile and a wink might be a deception. The beautiful plant might be poisonous. The majestic lion might now turn and kill you. The raised hand of your neighbor might no longer be a greeting, but the fist of Cain to smite you. The world in the grip of man's sin became potentially deceiving because of satanic deception and sin, where God's interpretation of reality is challenged and the world is fallen, the image can no longer be trusted to tell us the truth. Man's sinful nature now distorts the image of God in him and mars the creation. Nonetheless, after the fall of man into sin, God called the people, starting with Abel, to order all things over against the disordering and incoherence of sin. Once again, in terms of a total coherence and correspondence between truth and appearance. That is to say, by the grace of God, reality was to be conformed again to God's total word of truth. 
Man was to be redeemed and restored to the image of God so that he was no longer to live a lie. It's the meaning of redemption. Consequently, Abraham was called by God. God said to him, walk before me and be thou perfect. Image me to creation. The reality was, however, that without grace, the incoherence between the image and the true engendered by the fall, it couldn't be undone. Truth and appearance had become disparate and the to the point that man worshipped the created world rather than the creator. That's how disparate image and truth became. Appearance and truth. He worshipped the creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator and suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness. Man idolized himself as a god and made images of himself. He worshipped the image. He worshipped the image rather than the living God. So God, in terms of his eternal plan, sends us the second or last Adam in whom the image, appearance, that is, and truth correspond exactly. So that total coherence is restored in the person of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All of this means that Christ, from the Christian point of view, is the new ordering principle who medias meaning to us. He medias, mediates, he is the one mediator, medium, media, and media, mediator are all related. He medias meaning to us. That is, he is the true interpretation of God, of man, and of all things. Christ is God's medium. So Scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. In Christ, medium and message are one and the same. He is the interpreter and the true interpretation of all reality in himself. He is the interpreter and the true interpretation in himself. Listen to what the philosopher Jacques Ellul puts, how he puts it. This is very powerful. Listen closely. We're almost done. He says, the incarnation is the only moment in world history when truth rejoins reality. By that, he means appearances. When it completely penetrates reality, appearances. Appearances. 
and changes it at, at its root. The incarnation is the point where reality, appearances that is, ceases being a diversion from truth and where truth ceases being the fatal judgment of reality. At this moment, the word can be seen. The word can be seen. Sight can be believed because in, in the incarnation and there only, sight is related to truth. The image, which normally does not have the force of truth, becomes true when the image is Jesus Christ, who is the image of the living God. For this reason, John, that's the Apostle John, emphasizes sight, because here, reality, that is appearance, is penetrated by truth. This is why Jesus could say, I am the truth. Not let me teach you some truths. It's why he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He has come to restore us to the divine image and so begin the process in us of undoing the disparity, the disjoint between image, appearance, and truth. In a fallen world, we cannot equate what appears with truth. But in a visually dominated age where the visual is the medium, we're not inclined to think that's correct, are we? We're inclined to think that what we see is true. But this, in fact, is why God has chosen to reveal himself to us by his word. When God speaks, he speaks through his word. That's what God does. He speaks. His word interprets truthfully all appearances, and only in the incarnation do the two coincide perfectly, where truth again penetrated reality to the very core. What was seen and manifest in the life, work, and character of Christ wasn't a deception. It was no artful political campaign. It was not spun by the image makers. In fact, Scripture says there was no beauty to attract us to him. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. The Word of God now relates us, you see, to what is not seen. You don't see Christ in the flesh today. So God's Word by faith relates you to what is not seen. What is seen is temporary, Scripture says, but what is not seen is eternal. And so faith relates us to the invisible world. Hebrews says faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. When the kingdom of God fully comes and God's dwelling is with man, when in our flesh we see God and the veil is taken away, then once again there will be a direct correspondence between truth and appearance. When all reality is penetrated by truth to its core, until then we are conformed to the image of Christ and we seek to conform appearance to reality by pulling down vain imaginations. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments or vain imaginations and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, the battle for truth in our time means asserting that the only true media, mediator, between God and man, the only true interpretation of reality is God by his word of truth. 
As such, we must hold that truth is not something that can be apprehended by appearance alone. Since this is the case, to be out of touch with God's word is to be out of touch with reality. And and someone who is out of touch with reality is caught in the will to fiction. In fact, to deny reality is to be insane clinically, isn't it? Sin, actually, is the very essence of insanity. To deny God's word and Christ's mediation, his medium, is to turn toward illusion and madness. And we must recognize that modern visual media with TV and internet has increasingly become the definer of Western and increasingly global experience and the medium of reality that is defining culture. It's become a modern mediator of truth. When was the last time you sat down and read a really solid book, good work of Christian theology? Just putting it out there. You see, this medium seeks to justify and validate, and what it justifies and validates is usually man's relativistic world of sin, lust, covetousness, and lawless desire. And because of the ubiquity of television and visual media and the images it creates, to be on TV somehow gives people a greater value, a normative status above normal reality. And so the look, lifestyle, and opinions of stars are sought and prized by the masses. And then we televise our magazines, essentially. Pictures of the stars, People magazine, Hello magazine, all of these popular magazines that people read. And they think that if you've been on TV, you're validated. You must be important. What you say must be significant. Malcolm Muggeridge offers then the alternatives of media fantasy or Christ reality. He says, the media have created and belong to a world of fantasy, the more dangerous because it purports to be and is largely taken as being the real world. Christ, on the other hand, proclaimed a new dimension of reality so that Christendom, based on this reality, could emerge from the fantasy of the decomposing Roman civilization. Thus, the effect of media at all levels is to draw people away from reality, which means away from Christ into fantasy. The only truths in this world then are the ones that have come from man's imagination and those that have force are those which people find entertaining. If we're restricted to that medium. Now I know my, I've, I'm already two minutes over so I'm going to take one more minute and finish because I need to say this to close. In the garden of God, God walked and talked with Adam in the cool of the day. He saw, he heard, and there was a coherence between invisible truth and the appearance of things. That continuity and coherence we've seen was broken by the fall so that appearance is deceptive and misleading without the word of truth that is not visible. Totally personal truth became visible, though, in the incarnation and will be again at the restoration of all things. Now, what this means in history is God's self-revelation. In God's revelation of himself, the word must have priority over sight. It must have. The means of salvation, the manifest word of God, becomes the means of revelation, the inscripturated word of God and therefore the model of communication. When God wanted to reveal himself, he didn't mail you a DVD. Did he? He didn't live stream a show to you. 
All the dreams and visions in the Bible that he sends in Scripture had to be interpreted by God. Even the one that Peter had in Acts 10. It's not just given, not just the ones given to pagans like Pharaoh. God interpreted the dreams. When God spoke with finality, he sent his incarnate word and left us the scriptures, not a picture book. Picture books are great. They're beautiful. But they are an inadequate medium for communicating the complex truth of scripture. A culture which is dominated by the moving visual media, which is characterized by the instant, the context-free image, the incoherent soundbite, and necessarily by appearance rather than truth, is not going to be transformed to a biblical worldview by conforming our communication of the gospel into an essentially visual media mode of discourse. That's because the medium of the visual itself is incapable by its own nature of adequately communicating biblical truth sufficiently coherently for us to depend upon it. So we must transform the culture rather than be transformed by it. Since image making is not the way we communicate with God for worship, you don't make an idol to communicate with God and worship it, we cannot expect God to reveal himself to us through the instant moving images left uninterpreted. We must learn again to paint with the tongue, with the pen, and by that I mean with words, to reach for a sanctified imagination. When we speak God's word, it is the message that interprets the hearer, not the other way around. When you look at an image, you interpret the image. When you hear God's word, his message is interpreting you. His word interprets you. The image alone is ambiguous without coherent, complex words. It cannot give us a framework for their interpretation. But the word is capable of bringing context and framework. And moreover, rather than passes reception of the image, builds relationship between persons. So the solution to the limitations of visual media culture is not the impossible dream and I think perhaps undesirable goal of destroying TV and visual media. The solution is how we watch and how much we watch. How we watch and how much we watch. No medium is too dangerous if we understand what the dangers are. It's dangerous to make a smoke signal if you're careless with the fire. To pose these questions that I've done this morning and discuss the matter is really to break the spell of media manipulation and indoctrination so that we must watch everything critically and demystify it for ourselves and our children, if we have any. We have to expose how it recreates, how the visual media recreates and then degrades our understanding of God, creation, news, politics, etc. And then we need to put it to the good news, the good use of quality entertainment, cinematic artistry, powerful storytelling, and fun. And we must not lay on it the burden of winning people to Christ, because that is to trivialize the gospel. Above all, Young people, we need to learn to turn it off, read a book, and talk to each other. And there we would be all helped and assisted in our engagement with the culture. I'm going to leave it there. Break time, I think. Is it snack time? Break? You guys, you're on.
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.